I wonder if you've ever found yourself in a place where you felt so overwhelmed by life that you felt like you were doing good to juggle the things you have to do. I mean, you're, you're, uh, you, you are well acquainted with the idea of juggling many different hats. Uh, maybe you're a, a mother and a wife, but you're also professional. Maybe you're a, a friend and a brother, but you're also an independent business person. You know what it means to juggle different hats, have different obligations, and to strive for meeting different responsibilities. It's almost like you can be two different people at the same time. You feel like you have to do this and that, and you're two different people at the same time, and depending on the scenario, have to be one or the other. You ever felt that way? Uh, How many of you guys like Superman? (laughs) Superman is like my favorite superhero. Uh, Yes, thank you. Um, you'll like this, because if I were to dress up for Halloween, I'd probably be Superman. Now, I'd need to find a costume with a wider cape so I could fly. That was for you, Greg. <laughs> but uh, Superman, he's a guy, uh, Clark, Clark Kent. I, I, I don't know, I, we're, I think they're coming out with a new Superman, which is great. We need a younger Superman, a young, you know, sturdy with an S on his forehead. We just need to remake that film all the time. When we, uh, I don't know if you ever heard of the Smallville series. I have, like, I watched all eight seasons. I just love Superman. I love the whole thing about it. Here you have Clark Kent. He's a clumsy farm boy turned superhero. Uh, one second, he's saving the world, and the next, he is sticking his hand in a blender and uh, turning it on by accident, and there's not a cut on his hand. Of course, he's trying to make sure that Lois never finds it out. She's oblivious, so she doesn't figure out that he's Superman. But here you have a superhero and a clumsy guy at the same time. You know what I mean? I love it. Makes, uh, makes us clumsy people feel good about ourselves. Two different people at the same time. Have you ever felt that way, however, on a spiritual sense? Uh, like you're two different people in the spiritual sense at the same time. Maybe you've had uh, like a come-to-Jesus moment, and for the first time, you see yourself for who you truly are. It's clear as day. You are two different people at the same time, spiritually speaking. Today we're going to look at three types of lives. One life that we should aspire to, One life that we often find ourselves in, and one life that we partake in when we get right. We'll look look at the life that we should have, the life that we entangle ourselves in, and the correctly adjusted life. We'll see the wise life, the double life, and the restored life. And for that, we're going to go to the book of James. Turn your Bibles to the book of James. We're in... James chapter 3. Now, we've been in this series. If you've been with us for any amount of time, for the last several years, I've been going through the book of James. And there's been some comments about how long it's taken to get through it. And so I'm just letting you know that we're going to go through the book of Psalms next, which is only 150 chapters. And so uh, you should feel good about yourself. (laughs) It's only taken a couple years. James chapter 3. And uh, we're going to kind of break the rules here. We're going to actually go from chapter 3, verse 13, and we're actually going to go into chapter 4 as well because it's one paragraph. you got to understand, in, in, um, when we got the, the Bible, it didn't actually have chapters and verses for us. We made those. And so it seems like the flow of thought continues into chapter 4, so we're going to keep that flow of thought. First, we're going to look at the wise life. Uh, this is the life that we should aspire to be, the wise life. Uh, what we should aspire to be, the, the, the thing that we should strive for to be, the wise life. We're going to look at that. Go to uh, verse 13 in chapter 3. James chapter 3, verse 13. 
Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. It's really going to be our key verse for the whole text that we look at today. Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in humility that comes from wisdom. But you who harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come from heaven, but is earthly, unspiritual, and of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy, and good... and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. The wise life, that's what we should aspire to be. The goal of the wise life is to be humble. And it's really the key verse or the key word of everything I'm going to say today. Humility. Everything we look at today will look at humility. Are we being humble? Are we practicing humility? Are we living in humbleness, so to speak? Everything we look at comes back to humility. In verse 14, but if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Everything done out of bitter zeal or selfish ambition is void of humility. It is boastful and contrary to the truth. It's the idea of having factious rivalry or or party spirit. It's the person who loves dissension. I like being the one who takes the adverse position. I enjoy being critical. I like being overly analytical. I'm judgmental by nature. That's the idea. For some reason, these activities make me feel better about being me. There's no doubt that James is speaking to a church that's divided and they're fighting against each other. They're quarreling and they're fighting and they're disputing. That's the whole context of what's going on here. And he's saying to them, you should be living out of humility. When you participate in these things, you're participating in proudness or arrogance. And it's not only the actions of what you're doing, but it's the heart that you have inside of you. Are you trying to be humble? Are you trying to be proud? Then he goes to describe it. Describes the proud life. It's not from above. When you're living the proud life, you're not getting wisdom from above. It's earthly wisdom. It's unspiritual and it's even demonic, he says. The proud person is very close friends with jealousy, selfish ambition, disorder, and every evil practice. According to verse verse 16. And it's contrasted by the humble life, which he describes in verse 17 and 18. This wisdom is, first of all, pure, and it's from above. There's no sinful motive inside. There's no self-seeking attitude inside. It is peaceful, gentle, and obedient. It is full of mercy and good fruit. It's impartial and without hypocrisy. And finally, it's peacemaking. You know what he's saying? He's saying, what is all this going on? What's this fighting in the church? Why is there so much fighting in the church? 
This is not what you're supposed to be. This is not what you're supposed to do. Why is there so much dissension amongst you? Why aren't you following your leaders? What is it about what, what's going on? Where are the peacemakers? Why are you so contentious and obstinate? You have become the antithesis of peace. You know, if you're a leader at any point in the church for any amount of time, you get used to a certain group of people, and it's usually a very small group, not a lot, but a group of people that when you see them coming your way, you just know in the back of your mind, okay, get ready. Here it comes. They're the people who don't necessarily ever have something positive to say. They're never really thankful. They're never really grateful. They're never really like, and believe me, there's a whole bigger crowd over here that is very thankful and grateful. But there's a small group, for some reason, when you see them coming, okay, prepare yourself. This is God's test on you, Big Dave. You're going to learn patience in this conversation. And almost every time, guess what? We're right. I didn't like this. I didn't like that. This is horrible. This, did you think about this? You guys haven't done this. And you would think, wow. You said to yourself, but where does this obstinate, dissentive spirit come from? I've never once heard in youth ministry, I remember this all the time, I would, I would get parents who would say, thank you, thank you, this is wonderful. We thank God that we have a place to send our kids. We thank God that there's a place that, like, they're excited about the church Oh, man, we come here because they're so excited about coming to church. And at the last church, they hated going to church. And at your church, they love. That's why we're here. We get those all the time. And then we get people who would never say thank you. And they would come and say, well, you guys, I can't believe you did this. And I'm going, wow. You have no clue how many, how much, how many hours I put in the last week to make this happen. And the only thing you have to say is negative. Negative voices. I think God puts them there to teach us patience because we got to handle that right. Whether they come at us wrong, we still got to handle that right. We're not allowed to lose our top. So thank God for it. But are you that person? Are you that person? So critical, so judgmental, so overly analytical. By the way, this is not unlike the fruit of the Spirit that Paul talks about. In Galatians 5 where he says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Against such thing there is no law. Those who belong to Christ Jesus have, been crucified, have crucified the sinful nature and its passions and desires. Since we live by the Spirit, let us keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not become conceited, provoking, and envying each other. Isn't that interesting? where he comes to the very end of that? Isn't it interesting how Paul brings it back to conceitedness, provoking, envy? The enemy of peace is envy. The enemy of humility is self-promotion. The enemy of the fruit of the Spirit is internal conceitedness. It's that inner motivation that says, I'm right, or I'm better. I know more. I'm right. You all know him. You're very well acquainted with him. You may see him every day. He may be your boss. Maybe he's your employee. He's the guy that 
everybody dislikes, but they smile to his face. He's a guy where if there's ever a roundtable discussion and there's a debatable issue, he's going to take the adverse position and he's going to win that discussion. He's going to do whatever it takes to make sure that everybody thinks he's right. And in fact, even if he's wrong, it doesn't matter. He's going to win that discussion. He'll even make it so uncomfortable for everybody else in the conversation that they'll give in. You know why? Because he's right. He's always right. And everybody, although they know he's not right, they know he likes to always be right. And as for apologizing, why would he do that? He doesn't need to apologize. He's right. He's always right. Do you always have to be right? Can you admit when you're wrong? But better yet, how often do you admit when you're wrong? Do you ever apologize? As Pastor Phil would say, could anyone ever accuse you of being humble? What if your reputation changed from being Mr. or Mrs. Right to Mr. or Mrs. Humble? It's the wise life. It's the life that we should aspire to. It's who we should aspire to be. But unfortunately, we don't always live in humility. Many times, we as Christians, we struggle, don't we? And we end up living a double life. Let's go to chapter 4. Chapter 4, verse 1. The double life. What we oftentimes are. The double life. What we oftentimes fall into. James chapter 4, verse 1. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Do that come from your desires that battle within you? You want something, but you don't get it. You kill and covet, but you cannot have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask. And when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask with wrong motives. That you may spend what you get on your pleasure. You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. Or do you think the Scripture says without reason that the Spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? But he gives us more grace. That is why the Scripture says God opposes the proud and gives grace to the humble. It's a double life the life that we often find ourselves in. And the first thing we see is the pleasure of making war inside of us. He says, church, where does all this strife come from? Where does all this quarreling come from? The disputes, the fights, where does all that come from? It literally can be said this way. Is it not from, the, from your pleasure of making war in your members? It's the pleasure of waging war that's inside of us. We enjoy the fight. It's that proud inner motivation. It's like, I want to fight, and I want to win. And I want things my way or the highway. Then he describes this war that's waging inside of us. You desire, but you do not have. You murder and covet, but you're not able to obtain. 
You fight and make more, but you do not have because you do not ask. And then when you do ask, you don't receive because you ask wrongly, in order that you might spend it on your own pleasure. The word pleasure there is where we get our word hedonism. It's the idea that the chief end of man should be to pleasure himself. It's an attitude of sinful self-indulgence. Do whatever it takes to get what you want. It's the lifelong struggle to satisfy our selfish desires. It's that inner motivation that says, I'm going to force myself on this situation to get what I want. And I'll stop at nothing until I get it. Whether that means fight, war, hatred even unto death, frustration of not getting what I want overwhelms me so much that I turn violent. And I have a violent attitude. Selfish ambition. Envy. It's the opposite of humility. It is the opposite of humility. And as long as you're living in this carnal state, you'll never be in the will of God. You'll never be satisfied. Because you can only be satisfied in the will of God And the will of God is never about yourself. I remember watching, um, it must have been an ESPN 30 for 30 or something like that, um, about the basketball player Dwayne Wade kind of chronicling his life, although they never interviewed him. It was just the people around him. And um, kind of a humble, humble beginnings for sure. At the teenage years, he was kicked out of his house moved in with his girlfriend's mother uh, because he was homeless. Continued playing basketball in high school and then went to college. Not sure if he was well sought after when he was in high school to go to college, but when he got into college, he became a superstar. Then came the NBA, married this girl, and all the money and fame that came along with it. She, now his ex-wife, was recounting the story and saying it's amazing how you change so much when you go from a small apartment to the red carpet. How you become a different person. How you have different desires. You just change inside. And she wasn't she wasn't saying it in a positive way. She said it was only until this fame and money and stuff kind of wrecked their marriage and they got divorced. She hit her lowest point and then she went up going back to her roots. And she started saying, you know, when we were kids, we were church-going kids. We loved the Lord. We found satisfaction in the church. And it wasn't until my life was wrecked that I went back to that. And I found true satisfaction again in the church. Apart from the money and apart from the fame, I'm nobody. I'm his ex-wife. And then she said something profound. She said, and I wish the same for him. His ex-wife saying, I wish he would come back to the church one day and find true satisfaction with the Lord. Satisfaction can only be found in God's will. And God's will has nothing to do with self and self-motivation and selfish ambition. See, that's the way it's supposed to be. But when we leave, we commit spiritual adultery. That's what he says. Look at verse 4. 
You adulterous people, don't you know that friendship with the world is hatred toward God? Anyone who chooses to be a friend of the world becomes an enemy of God. You adulteresses. It's not unlike the Old Testament terminology that God would use as, as I, I'm, I'm uh, Israel, you're, you are my, you're, you are in a marriage state with me. In fact, so much so, I'm going to send the prophet Hosea, and, and he's going to marry a prostitute just to show what you've been doing to me. You've committed adultery against me. In the New Testament, the church is described as the bride of Christ. And at this point, this church has committed adultery with the world. Don't you know that friendship with the world is enmity with God? Strong language. And he continues, Therefore, whoever might wish to be a friend of the world renders himself an enemy of God. Adulteresses, enmity, enemy of God. Strong, strong terminology. It's like this. Imagine, you remember those T scales? It's like a T. There's a plate on this side, a plate on this side, and there's a T. And it goes like this, right? One side over here is being a friendship with the world. One side over here is being a friend with God, right? As you increase your friendship with the world, you're also increasing your enmity with God. As you increase your friendship with the world, you become an enemy of God. The two are diametrically opposing each other. As you become a friend of, the, a friend of God, you oppose the world. You cannot have both. One is going to adversely affect the other. Is that what you really want? That's what he's saying. Is that what you really want, church? You're fighting amongst each other. You're quarreling amongst each other. Is that what you want? Do you want to be an enemy of God? He's a strong language like adultery, enmity, em- enemy, because he's a jealous God. He's a jealous God. Now I'm going to describe what I mean by that in a second, but first I have to say this. I'm going to kind of commit a cardinal sin right now. I don't usually like to disagree with translations of the Bible, especially because the 50 to 100 scholars that wrote, that, that translated it, uh, are generally a lot smarter than I am. Um, but in this situation, I kind of disagree with the way NIV translates verse 5. But then I cross-referenced it with the NASB, which is a more little translation, and the ESV, and I found that they agree with me, so I figure I'm in good company. So I feel good about myself. The NIV says in verse 5, Or do you think the Scripture says without reason that the spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely? And the spirit there is a human spirit. Do you think that the Scripture says without reason that the human spirit he caused to live in us envies intensely. Kind of like God put a flawed spirit inside of us. Kind of hard to swallow that. The NASB says it differently. Or do you think that the Scripture speaks to no purpose? He, being God, jealously desires the Spirit, being the Holy Spirit, which he, had, which he has made to dwell in us. He, being God, jealously desires the Holy Spirit, which he made to dwell in us. It's written in such a unique way that it's hard to determine what the subject of the verb is, but it seems like the NASB fits the context a little better. You see, we have a jealous God. There's a wrestling going on inside of each one of us, an internal juggle, so to speak, going on inside of each one of us. Call it the good angel versus the bad angel. Uh, uh, the, the angelic big Dave versus the devilish big Dave on your right, right and left shoulder, whatever you want to call it. 
It's, it's, it's the wrestling that says, will I live for the Lord or for the world? Will I be satisfied with God or will I commit an adulterous relationship with the world? It's like you're two different people at the same time. And in that process, God says, with jealously, he desires the spirit which he caused to dwell in us. You are my people. You are the ones that I sent Jesus to die on the cross for. You're supposed to be different. You're supposed to be a representative of me. And look, look at what you've become. You're fighting and quarreling. You've got uh, dissension amongst you. I desire the spirit of God that I caused to live inside of you. And I'm not seeing it. While you're envying sin, I'm envying you. Where is the Spirit of God I placed inside of you? Where is it? At best, you're living a temporary double life. At worst, you're a never believer to begin with. But thank God he's gracious. Because in verse 6, it says, in spite of the mess we make in this double life, he gives greater grace. But he gives greater grace, therefore. He says, God opposes for himself the proud and gives grace to the humble. There's that word again. Humility. It's the theme of all this, everything we're going to say today. God must oppose everything that's against his nature, and proudness is against his nature. But if you bring forth humility, he'll give grace. It's the person that says, I need help. I can't do this on my own. I'm worthless without you. But it's quite a blow to the pride to say, I can't do it on my own, isn't it? I need you to help me. There's only one condition on God that God makes before he dispenses his grace, and that's humility. We've looked at the wise life, the double life. Now let's look at the restored life. How much you want to bet that humility is involved in that? Let's look at verse 7, chapter 4, verse 7. The restored life, what we should become. The restored life, this is the life that we should become if we're struggling with the double life. Verse 7. Submit yourselves then to God and resist the devil and he will flee from you. Come near to God and he will come near to you. Wash your hands, you sinners, and purify your hearts, you double-minded. Grieve, mourn, and wail. Change your laughter into mourning and your joy into gloom. Humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. Man, what is this? It's a call to repentance. It's a great verse for our unbelieving friends, isn't it? Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded people. Feel miserable. Mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned around into mourning and your joy into uh, dejection. Maybe you think to yourself, man, I know somebody who needs to hear that. Somebody who doesn't know Jesus who really needs to hear that. What's the problem with that? He's not talking to unbelievers. He's writing this book to believers, to Christians. It's written to us. It's written to believers who take up selfish ambition 
It's written to believers who envy power. It's written to believers who take up a party spirit. It's written to believers who espouse arrogance. It's written to believers who champion pride. It's written to believers stuck in a double life. Cleanse your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. Feel miserable. Mourn and weep. Surrender your will to God. Submit yourself to Him. Feel miserable, mourn, weak. Have you ever been broken over your sin? I mean, not after you got caught. Before you got caught. Like in your own prayer room. Weeping and saying, God, I'm so sorry. I don't care if anybody knows. I'm sorry. I love you. Let your laughter be turned around into mourning and your joy into dejection. Stop being festive about your sin. The things you used to be ashamed about, you now take pictures of and post it on Facebook. Do you really want the restored life? Repent. Change. Come to him in humility. Psalms 51, 17 says, For you do not delight in sacrifice, otherwise I would give it. You are not pleased with burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Maybe you feel like you're being humbled right now. Maybe God's allowing you to go through a series of events in your life where he's bringing you to a low point. Maybe you don't feel very good about yourself. Maybe you don't feel very good about your character. Make it your goal from this point forward to say, I'm going to offer to you, God, a broken and contrite heart. I will come to you humbly. He promises he will not despise that. It's that inside thing that says, no, I'm going to fight it. I'm going to fight it. Won't allow us to admit when we're wrong. Several years ago, before I came to Valley, I was close friends with a pastor. He was a good man. But he had several minor, I would say minor blind spots. The elders of the church took notice of these blind spots and they decided that they were going to, in a loving fashion, come alongside and admonish him and work with him on these issues. In the perfect world, the pastor would have said, you know, I'm sorry, I apologize, I didn't know that, and agree to work on those blind spots. But he took a different, different position. He took the position of there are no such blind spots. I've done nothing wrong. I understand there's 10 to 15 of you elders who have all witnessed this at various different times, but so obviously you're all wrong. You've all misinterpreted me. I'm right. Nine months later, he didn't have a job. Offer to him a broken and contrite heart. He will not despise that. It takes humility to come to him broken. But he promises he will lift you up. He promises that he'll restore you. It's the restored life. What we should desire to become. So where are you at? Where are you at? How are you doing with this internal juggle? Do you need to repent over a hard attitude? Which life do you fall into? Do you fall, are you living the, the wise life? Are you stuck in the double life? Might you need to humble yourself and get right? 
participate in the restored life? You guys, I wish I could tell you that my character is void of all these issues. That I somehow don't struggle with this stuff. You know, I can be, it's going to be hard for you to believe, but I can be a pretty arrogant jerk at times. Um, it's easy for me to travel down the road of Mr. Right. I'm a super logical individual. And sometimes I feel like the world would just be a better place if everyone else was logical. And sometimes that, that haughty spirit I have inside of me can, can allow me to make myself feel like I'm better than other people and even demean them in my heart. You see, around you guys, I can hide it pretty good. But around my family, they see it the most. I can have an ugly, ugly, condescending spirit at times because I think I know it all, because I think I'm better, because I think I'm best, because I'm right. How about you? How about you? How far does an arrogant and proud heart take you before you repent? How about apologizing? Do you ever do that? Do you ever apologize to your husband or your wife? Do you ever apologize to your kids? Say, you know, I was wrong. That was a wrong attitude. Even when I disciplined you, that was a wrong attitude. Disciplining you was right, but I had the wrong attitude in doing it. Do you ever do that? What state is your heart in right now? If you're visiting us today and maybe you wouldn't classify yourself as a Christian, we would love to introduce you to a God who would send his son to die for messed up people. He promises to change us from the inside out. But in the process, sometimes there's growing pains. And that's what this text is all about. See, we're not perfect people, but on our good days, we're striving after Jesus. You see, we believe that true believers will want to show God gratitude for sending Jesus on the cross. It was an act where where Jesus would come down and die on the cross, and God would say, I'll take everything that you've done wrong, Big David, and I'll put it on Jesus, and I'll satisfy my judgment on Jesus. And then I'll take everything that Jesus did right, his righteousness, his rightness, and I'll place it onto you, Big Dave, if you believe in him. So that in some weird way on earth, even though I'm not perfect on earth, God will look at me perfectly. He'll say, you have the blood of Jesus surrounding you. You are perfect and you can be with me in heaven. We call that salvation. Of course, that was ratified when Christ was resurrected from the dead. So you can see while on earth we're not perfect people, but on our good days we're striving after Jesus. And I just wonder about you. I wonder if you'd consider believing in Jesus. Come talk to us. We'd love to introduce you. And for the rest of us, there's three lives. Which one are you participating in right now? The wise life? The double life? And do you need the restored life? Let's pray. Well, it's always funny to me when you have me preach something that I still work on myself. It's almost like you have a little bit of humor going on up there. But I know I love you. I know I want to strive for you.
I know we have a church that loves you, wants to strive for you. And yet we all still struggle with the sin principle. And sometimes we fall into a rut and into a pit where we become combative, judgmental. Everything, we're sensitive about everything. We're critical about everything. We always want to be right. Help us, Lord, to live in the Spirit and to have victory over that negative, condescending attitude we can have so that we can glorify you more. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.